Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we acknowledge, Lord, that your word is inerrant. Lord, it is all we need for us to know about you, know about ourselves, what you require of us, what the Lord requires of us, how we can walk humbly and how we can love mercy. We pray now, Lord, that as uh, the word is opened up, Lord, that uh, not only we go into our minds and hearts, but Lord, that it will it will translate into our everyday lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said in the Bible reading, we're going to look at um, two, from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, right through to chapter 7, verse 1. And those verses that I read earlier, are crucial for our usefulness and blessings in the Christian life. I'll repeat that. They're crucial for our usefulness and blessings in our Christian life. And indeed, represent possibly the greatest challenge to those of us who are believers in living the Christian life. It's quite clear as you read through those verses, that there are only two realms, two kingdoms, two completely different realms and kingdoms in this world. And then from those verses, they're categorised and contrasted. You have righteousness, lawlessness. You have light, you have darkness. You have Christ, have Satan or Belial. They have the believer and the unbeliever. And then we have the temple of God and idols, idolatry, idol worship. If you're a Christian this morning, you live in the first of those kingdoms, categorized by righteousness, light, the Lord Jesus, you're a believer and the temple of God. But if you come this morning and you're not a believer, your life will be categorised by lawlessness. I don't mean in the way that it's used in the, in the media, but keeping God's law is not your priority. It doesn't govern your everyday life. If you're an unbeliever, your life will be categorised by darkness. You'll be under the control of Satan. It's a bit strong, isn't it? That's what the word says. If you're an unbeliever, you will have a number of, inverted commas, idols, things that you worship. Uh, it was interesting, Warren was talking about before he became a believer, his idol was computer games, virtual reality. It may not be that, but it may be things that really you feel you almost live for and earn money for, and spend your time enjoying. Christians live in the first, unbelievers live in the second. And the message from Paul to this Corinthian church is that if you're a believer, and he's addressing the Christians in the church, you cannot live in both of those worlds. You can't shuttle back and forth from one to the other as your days progress. 
You can't try and live as close to the kingdom of Satan as you feel you can, but still remain saved. Now, this is what the Corinthian Christians were trying to do. Encouraged and supported, as we've heard in previous week, by false teachers who were trying to introduce pagan practices that were common and surrounded the church in Corinth. And they were trying to introduce them into the Christian church. And what uh, Paul is urging them from scripture is that he's seeking them to pull those Christians back from shuttling backwards and forth and skirting near the ways of the pagan world. He was getting them to live a distinctive, a holy, a separated and Bible-based life. And he was telling them quite clearly in that verse 15, do not make an alliance with the unbeliever. It's illustrated actually in the, the verse before it, in verse 14. And it says, do not be unequally yoked together with the unbelievers. Now, I've got a, got a picture here. Um, there we are. That's a yoke. Now, unless you go out into sort of fairly unsophisticated countries, I remember travelling China a number of years ago and saw a lot of these, and um, they use basically uh, sort of like two power uh, or three power, depending on the yoke, uh, to pull a plough. Um, and the notion is, from this, this particular verse, is that the, the readers would be familiar with a verse in Deuteronomy that says... Um, you shall not plough with an ox and a donkey. That's what it's saying. Do not be unequally yoked. Now, obviously, if you've got a, a donkey and an ox, uh, it's going to be difficult. They're different sizes. They've got different natures. They've got different gates, different sort of steps, strides, different strengths. <coughs> different instincts and disposition. And there's no way, if you were to put a, a, a yoke on um, a, an ox and a donkey, that you're going to get a straight furrow. It's just not going to happen. And Paul is using this illustration to say what will happen if you put together a Christian and a non-Christian who inhabit completely different kingdoms different realms and he's saying that as Christians in here and it, we apply it to ourselves this morning that if we so mix with the world we won't in, in picture language not plough a straight furrow we will be less effective and less blessed and we will consider that this morning that's my way of introduction and the the three uh, divisions uh, this morning that I want to look at, three very simple divisions, is over what we mean by being different or separated. First of all, we're going to look at what it isn't, what separation isn't. We'll then look at what separation is. And then lastly, why is it so crucial? 
for our blessing and usefulness as believers. Why is it so important as believers that we are separate? So, let's have a look then at what separation isn't. Well, the first thing, and from these verses, this mistaken view of these verses has led to this, it doesn't mean living in a a monastic and isolated lifestyle. And many used this verse in the early um, uh, you know, post uh, uh, period of Acts to form monastic orders, and and that's how they responded. Now we're all we're all familiar with the the musical, the sound of music, aren't we? We're all we all know that. Julie Andrews. And you remember that's a good, very good picture of it, wasn't it? You know, she, she, she had to make a decision. She was either going to be in or she was going to be out. She was going to spend the rest of her life in the convents, separated from everybody else, or she was going to go out. And she went in and they said, you're not sure, so go out for a bit. And that's that notion, isn't it? That if you're going to live a life dedicated to God, you've got to isolate yourself. Uh, you've got to be in a, a monastery or a... Um, convent or whatever, man or a woman, and you just devote yourself to God. You don't have any contact. You're hermetically sealed from the outside world. Um, and that's the way that you can really um, be useful and blessed as a believer. And that's what God wants. We, we, we know that that's, that's, not, uh, that's not true. And we, we know that's not true from, from Scripture. Um, just to use, um, first of all, the example of Paul, the author of these uh, verses. I've mentioned the, uh, the verses from Corinthians um, 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 5, which talk about Paul saying that, you know, he, he, in order to win, to seek to win people to the Lord, you know, he would, he would go out of his way to, to, to try and communicate with them and meet with them and bring them the news of salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in um, 1 Corinthians 5, he says it didn't matter, you know, how on the surface they appeared morally wicked, that he would mix with them. We know this with the Philippian jailer. We know of it when he, when he got into Athens and met with all the, the atheists and uh, believers in pagan practices in Athens. And... And if we look to Jesus himself, the Great Commission, how can we go out into the world and make disciples of all nations if we stay away from, from unbelievers? It's just not possible, is it? You know, we stay behind, separated by walls. And, well, I mean, if we look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, he mixed spent much time with sinners, woman of Samaria, Zacchaeus. Indeed, what was the Pharisees' main criticism of the Lord Jesus Christ? That he met with publicans and sinners. That's one of the big things that they, that they uh, criticised him for. If we read in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 10, just have a quick turn to that. Matthew 
it's, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He didn't separate himself and just meet with uh, religious people. He met with all. Now, becoming a nun or a, a monk, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, a, a career option, is it, you know, these days? It's not that popular. I didn't see anybody when Graham asked the children, what would you like to be when you grow up? I didn't see many uh, monks and nuns in their answer. But we have to be careful, I think, as, as believers that we don't isolate ourselves from meeting with unbelievers, that we just keep to Christians, that our circle of friends is almost exclusively those who are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. How then will you be able to share the gospel with unbelievers if you have no, little real or effective contact with them? I mean, it's... it's um, it's a temptation. I, I was uh, minded of a few weeks ago, um, a chap from um, uh, Garston Bridge, uh, Bridge Church, said, knew that I was interested in uh, going out on the bike, and he said, we've got a cycle group in Garston, what do you want to go and join it? And I thought, yeah, it'd be good, you know, talking with fellow Christians and people on, on the sort of the same level. And I thought, no, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with this group that I go with who are unbelievers. I, began, I, I, I have to be honest, I did um, question that uh, when I went with them that Thursday, when, I had to, when they know that I was a Christian, and one of them had a go with me about why then does God allow young children to have cancer? And I sought to, uh, from the Bible, explain it to her, and she went absolutely hopping mad, and she still hasn't spoken to me since. And I thought, yeah, maybe I think I'll go back, but no. No, we're to meet with unbelievers. We're to have contact with them. We'll talk a little bit more about that, that later on as we go into later verses. So it doesn't mean completely isolating yourself either through brickwork or just severing contact with people who are unbelievers or having as little to do with them as possible. Secondly, separation is an inward, not just an outward activity. It's separation in your heart and not just what you do. Many of, uh, perhaps in the congregation, even older than me, there are some people older than me, may, may have been brought up to believe that worldliness was just not involving yourself in certain activities. You don't go to the theatre. You don't go to the pictures. Or perhaps, you know, you don't have a TV or you don't watch a TV or you don't go dancing and you certainly wouldn't go into a pub or a club. And the notion was that if you kept away from those areas and those spheres of activity, that, you know, that you could say, well, I'm not a worldly person. I'm not, I'm not uh, mixing with the world. And uh, there was a 
a book out um, in the late 70s by John White called Flirting with the World. And he, drawing on from scripture, said, no, he said, that's not world worldliness. It doesn't sum up worldliness. What the Bible says is, is worldly, is states of your heart. List them from scripture. Jealousy, anger, envy, lust, gossiping, backbiting, greed. Um, I brought, it quotes um, from Packer, a couple of things from uh, Jim Packer on this topic. He says, being of the world means being controlled by what preoccupies the world. The quest for pleasure, profit and position. And then he says, worldliness means yielding to the spirit that animates fallen mankind. The spirit of self-seeking and self indulgence without regard for God so mixing with the world and not being separate is predominantly a statement of heart now John White is very quick to point out though that that's not to say that that in your Christian liberty you may feel that it's not helpful going to films or even having a TV in the home and, and he's, not, he's not turning that, that, that down. If you feel that that really is a, would be a help to you in your Christian life and to have one can drag you down, well, that's, that's part of your Christian liberty. But what he was saying was it, it's not just a matter of activity and not doing certain things, but it's the state of your heart. It means that are you controlled by what preoccupies the world. So there are two things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean isolating yourself. It doesn't mean just being quite happy. Well, I don't go, oh, you won't find me in the pictures or in the smile, you know, that uh, I've, got, I've got it all sorted and I'm not worldly. It's not like that. It's a state of the heart. Well, that's what it doesn't mean. But what does it mean? And this is really the main thrust of Paul's words here. The first one, particularly, and what Paul is saying here in those verses is that Christians and unbelievers cannot be joined in a common spiritual exercise. And that's, these verses are applied to the church and it's applied to individuals. So, and we, we apply it to church and individual Christians. The greatest danger, and this is why so many of the epistles talk about uh, false teachers and false <coughs> doctrines. The greatest danger to the church is from within. Often when the church is attacked from outside is that the church often grows stronger. But Satan knows, and it's um, in, in Bunyan in his book, Holy War, had this down to a T that the greatest danger is from within. The greatest danger is from within. Those who use the word Christian but do not believe in the key aspects of the Christian faith. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus' deity, his life, the life-saving work on the cross. They don't believe in salvation by grace alone. They don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, 
and treating scripture as a whole, not picking out bits that suit them and don't suit them and rejecting and ignoring other parts. This was the problem, wasn't it, with the Corinthian church? We've looked at this in previous weeks. What they were trying to do, you see, was they were faced with very many pagan practices and some of them masquerading as, as believers were bringing in pagan practices and beliefs into the church. And he said, possibly they said, oh no, this will make you more acceptable to, to, getting, um, to increasing your number. That, um, you know, it will make, you know, that people think, yeah, it might be more attracted to the church. And this is why ecumenism is, is, is so dangerous. And that's why we should be so against it. Yeah, people say, yeah, you're, you know, Balvedi is just so isolationist. But you, you can get people... You know, the idea is to get people together and make them feel comfortable. Make all these different beliefs and get them together and make them feel comfortable. Even though they don't see the Lord Jesus Christ as the sole way to getting to heaven. They don't see the Bible as being the inerrant word of God. And people will share a platform with people who were like that. And this is what was happening then. Times have not changed, have they? This is what's happening today. And this is what Paul is so against. What part has Christ with the devil? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Fellowship with righteousness and with lawlessness and light with darkness. John MacArthur, I remember reading one of his books. I can't remember which one it was. When faced with this, he said, I regard myself as a, as a failed minister of the gospel. If unbelievers come in and hear my message and say, oh, good word, happy word, no, really pleased, and they're unbelievers, and they didn't feel uncomfortable by the challenge of the gospel. If, that, if people have come in as unbelievers... And what I've said to them has left them feeling as comfortable as they did before they came in. I have failed. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. So we should not share a common platform. We should not have a common spiritual enterprise with those who may have the label of Christians but clearly from their teaching and what they support, they do not fit that category. Yes, have them in in order to be able to explain and preach the gospel to them as subjects to what we said, but not as fellow workers, not as believers with unbelievers. Light with darkness, Christ with Satan. So that's the first thing that it means. And this is the, 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 the primary purpose that it's talked about here. The second thing that it's talking about is here. Now, I'll put this as a bold statement and clarify it as I speak. 
your closest friends should be. If you're a Christian, your closest friends should be believers. Now, it's often applied to, to marriage. Dear me, you know, if, you've been, if you're married, you're very, very close. And you can see the, uh, the arguments for that. But it's, it's, it's beyond just that. Now, I don't mean to say, and I explained it earlier on, that you shouldn't have unbelievers as friends. I mean, how else are you going to be able to share the gospel? How, how else are you going to invite people to things, you know, unless you know, they, they, they know you and, um, and respect, respect you? But let's remember, I, I, as I was um, preparing for this um, I was helped by the, uh, uh, the baptism yesterday, what Ian said and what uh, Daniel said and what Warren said. Let's remember that when you become a Christian, when you have faith in Christ, it leads to a transformation. We heard last week that we're a new creation. We're a new creature. We're born again. We enter in to that new realm. We move from that realm of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. It's a radical difference. We have different thoughts. We have different values. We have different standards, principles, hopes. It's a radical difference. This is what Paul is saying here. Now, we mix with unbelievers, yes, we may, we may share similar jobs, similar interests. They might have similar backgrounds, they might come from the same area. They might have similar likes and dislikes, similar hobbies, etc. But despite those similarities, if you deep down beyond those similarities, there are there are only superficial similarities. When we meet with them, we see the radical differences. We seek to promote Christ. They seek to promote self and what they're about. We seek to show that we love Christ, but they may treat him at least with indifference. We love the Bible. Their view, it's a load of fairy tales. How can you believe that? My brother says, I thought you were intelligent, lad, when we were growing up. How can you believe that? I remember when I became a Christian in my beginning of my second year, 1973, university. And obviously I'd been there a year and I'd made a few friends already. And when I became a Christian, I still met with them, but I didn't meet as much because I, I realised I didn't have what what they had was in common. You know, I, di- I, I didn't want to go down the pub and talk just about progressive rock music and football. And I wanted more than that. And I think they got quite upset with me because they felt I'd, I'd uh, I kicked them into touch. And I suppose in some way it happened. I wanted to remain friends with them, but I realised the differences. And I wanted to be more with people who were believers. And not only that, one of the hardest things when I became a believer 
was my relationship with my mum and dad, particularly my, my mum and dad. When I came back and told them um, that I'd become a Christian, well, my dad didn't really know what I was talking about, but my mum was really upset. Said, you know, if you, if you brought you up as a Catholic, you know, you know, you went to Catholic school, choir, everything. You're rejecting it. And she was really physically upset. And I always remember my dad. He put his arm round my mum and he said, Oh, don't worry about it, Anne. You remember when he used to collect stamps? It only lasted four weeks. The stamp book's up in the attic. Now, what Paul is saying here, when you become a Christian, don't put your life up in an attic. Share the gospel. And I found that really hard. I was very close to mum and I remained close. But there was something different. You know, what, what meant everything to me, she couldn't understand. She couldn't enter into it. Your closest friends should be believers. It's a warning, isn't it, that perhaps that's not the case. Question how much your Christian life really means to you. How much are you in there skirting with their realm that you feel so happy being with them? So we've looked then at separation. Paul has spoken about to the Corinthians. We've looked at what it's not. We've looked at what these verses say that it is. Lastly, why is it so important? Well, we've probably got a good idea by now, but let's just look specifically why it is so important. Well, the first reason is that the, the call by God to be separate, to be holy, is woven into the very fabric of the Bible. Right from Genesis, right through to Revelation. It's woven into it. It's, there's, there's words of being called out, separated. There are countless examples galore of where it's not happened and the consequences as a result. Right from Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. What did Abraham what did Ab- was Abraham told by God? Get out of your country. Later on in Exodus, the Jews, let my people go. Get out of to Egypt. And it's very revealing, those uh, verses. And if you read 1 Corinthians 10, you see Paul's um, words about them. Remember when they... They were miraculously delivered from Egypt. They hadn't almost set foot past the sea when they were moaning and they were complaining. And then this continued. And then later on, when Moses was up in the mountain and they started wondering if Moses had disappeared and God had deserted them and Moses had deserted them, what did they do? They formed a golden calf. Now, they didn't just get that out of thin air, did they? That didn't just happen. Oh, yeah, I think fancy a golden calf. It came out of their time in Egypt. It was part of their pagan practices. They had not made that proper separation. And as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verse 14. Flee from idolatry. There are characters in the Bible that are testimony to the consequences of not being separate. Look at Samson when he married a Philistine woman, a pagan woman. Look at Solomon, not happy with just one. He had many of them. Look at Ahab marrying Jezebel and what it did to them and brought them down. But I want us to look Turn to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. I'm going to read from verse 1, and I probably could read a lot of verses, but I'll probably restrict myself to just a few of them. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh, do you remember the one he was eventually hauled up to uh, by the Babylonians, the Syrians, sorry. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. The surrounding nations. We're surrounded, aren't we, by idolatry pagan practices what did he do he rebuilt the high places which hezekiah his father had destroyed he raised up altars for baal made a wooden image as ahab king of israel had done he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them he built altars in the house of the lord of which the lord has said in jerusalem i will put my name and it goes on and on. Verse 6, he made his sons pass through the fire, practiced soothsay and used witchcraft. And it just goes on. An ever-depressing sequence. His father, Hezekiah, has separated him and his people for God. What did Manasseh do? Started piling in worldly, idolatrous practices that were common in the areas nearby. What a, what a lesson is that for us in our Christian lives. Beware that we do a Manasseh-type job in our Christian lives. We start introducing gradually into our affections and desires things really that should not be there. Well, that's the Old Testament, but the New Testament is full of such references. One well-known Romans 12, 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not be conformed to this world. Or as J.V. Phillips' version says, do not be squeezed into the world, the shape of the world. Um, James talks about friendship with the world as being an enemy with God. 1 John specifically is about this, particularly 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. Right through to Revelation, I said from... It's interwoven from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation says, come out. We're to come out. But one that um, I would just like us to look at uh, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's near to where we've been reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Very well-known verses. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Why is it so important? Because to not do so is out and out disobedience of God. And from that last verse, not only is it disobedience, it's sacrilegious. Let's have no going back to the ways of the world. No trying to shuttle from one to the other. To try and do so is outright disobedience to our God. And lastly, if that's not enough of why it's so important, we'll look to verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 16, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. It's ungrateful to our God. Now, chapter 7 opens up, and it it is part of uh, those verses we've read. Therefore, having these promises, all these promises that have been mentioned before, uh, that I will be your God and you shall be my people. And you've been blessed if you come out. All these promises, and it... It reminded me of um, when, when um, uh, Ruth and I got married. It was quite, quite a few years ago. And uh, they used to have cassettes then. Do you remember cassettes? Remember cassettes? Remember cassette machine? And, um, and it was Stuart Olliott who, uh, who took our marriage service. And uh, we, it was taped. And um, I haven't done it for a while. I'll, um, I have to confess. But for quite a few years afterwards, I used to get the old tape out, put it, plonk it in the uh, cassette recorder and play it. And it, it, it was great. It reminded me that, that Ruth, this side of eternity, had, decided that, had made a decision that she was going to stick with me, take me, live her life on this earth with me, uh, for richer or poorer, sickness and in health. You know, you know what, what it said. Uh, for the good times, the bad times. And such promises, like in the marriage service, should, should elicit from us, should provoke from us gratitude, love and faithfulness and obedience and, and thankfulness. And, and this is what this verse is saying. Let's think of the promises that God has made to us. We looked at this last Wednesday, didn't we? That... Through Christ Jesus, who came into the world, came into the world to save sinners. Of I am the chief, Paul says. But as our pastor said on Wednesday, we can all say that. What a promise! And it should elicit similar response from us: obedience, love, thankfulness, praise. Complete devotion. And verse 1, chapter 7, says that our response puts it in two ways. And let's consider them lastly before we, we finish this morning. So it puts it in a, in a negative way, first of all. Um, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. So that we should cleanse ourselves, we should be separate. We should renounce 
perhaps the sinful habits and practices and thoughts and what we dwell on of our old life. Are we, are we doing this? Or, or are we like Manasseh, where it's only half the story and we're starting to put them back in? Or we've never got rid of them in the first place, which is often a criticism of many of the kings of Judah, that they, they didn't even do the job or did half-hearted job of getting rid of the pagan practices. So that's the negative side. But our faith isn't just what we're not to do, but it's the positive of what we should do. And it goes on, doesn't it? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Be ye perfect, as I said, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We can never be perfect this side of eternity, but we should seek to live a life that's pleasing to God. Seek those things, Scripture says, which are above. We should aspire to be more prayerful. We should aspire to regularly and read, study and meditate God's word. We should aspire to do good works for believers and unbelievers alike. We should aspire, we should seek to attain to love like the Lord Jesus Christ loved. What we shouldn't do is to go back or go shuttle from one side to the other and be disobedient and ungrateful, sacrilegious. I said at the beginning, and I'll say it again, that these verses are crucial for our usefulness and blessings in the Christian life. And they're the greatest challenge, if you're a Christian this morning, in living that life. Paul was challenging the Corinthians and those words this morning from God's word challenge us also. Let us pray that we will respond to the challenge. Amen.